God, we want to be a people shaped by your word. We want to love you and know you more. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The text today is from Jonah. We're continuing our series there. Uh, Jonah 1, verse 11, uh, through the end of chapter 2. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bar closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I wish the voice of thanksgiving will will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Good morning, church. I send greetings from my family. As many of you know, we've been battling COVID for the last two weeks, and uh, I finally dropped down with it last week, and yesterday was my first day out of quarantine. So um, my family misses you a lot. It's been, it feels like 2020 again, because we've been gone out of town and preaching and So it's been about five weeks since my family has been able to see most of you. So it has been a tough season for us, but not not too tough, not tougher than what many of you guys are going through. So grateful that you could come this morning. This uh, text that we have has been a challenge for me. As many of you know, I've preached through Jonah twice now. This is my third time. And yet every single time I preach through a passage, I never take it for granted that I did the work once and it's over. Um, I re-looked at the text this week with a hazy mind and an achy body, and I felt like I didn't get the text. I didn't understand it. I had to look over it over and over and over again. And all week, I have been both in anguish, both physically and mentally and in my soul, because I wanted to give you what God had for you in Jonah chapter 2. And uh, 
this morning, <laughs> it finally clicked. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this opportunity to preach you God's word, and especially in a book like Jonah. Because as I asked last week, you know, I asked, raise your hand if you're familiar with the, with the story of Jonah. Most of you raised your hands. And yet, I asked then a follow-up question, raise your hand if you studied the book of Jonah carefully, and most of you could not raise your hands. And that is a problem. It's a problem when so much of what we understand about God and know about his word has been shaped primarily through what we've heard from other people rather than opening up God's word ourselves and looking at the words carefully. And when you think about how flimsy the average Christian is in America and how little they know their Bibles, how soft their affections are for God, how little their passions how little their convictions, it, no wonder that so much of our theology and our understanding about God and his word have been shaped primarily through what we've heard rather than what we've experienced through God himself and his word. This is a great gift that we get to study God's word afresh, especially a story that many of us take for granted and know from afar but have not known personally. So God wants to reveal to us a greater level of who he is through this passage. Let me remind you where we're at Jonah is this patriotic prophet who says very good things about his people but never speaks ill about their state before God. And God has called him to preach to their sworn enemies, and Jonah isn't having it. And so rather than obeying God, he flees from God's presence, goes the wrong direction 1,500 miles away from God, and yet God has mercy upon Jonah. See, the reality is Jonah was a prophet. And therefore, most of his life, he obeyed God. Most of his life, he obeyed the Torah. He said yes to God in many places, but there were certain areas that God did not have claims towards. He would not let God touch. Jonah is a lot like us, where there's a lot of areas that we will readily obey God, but there are certain areas that are too close to home, too close to our idols, too close to our identity, to our security, to our great love, that if God touches that, we will go to war with God. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians who've grown up in church their whole life, many years of outward faithfulness, and the moment God touches something close to the nerve, then another side of them emerges. And that's what we see in Jonah, and that's what we see in us so often. And so God sends and appoints a storm to be hurled upon the boat. But what we see in God's heart behind all of these actions is that God is not merely trying to punish Jonah from his sin, but remember, he's trying to bring him back from his sin. God's discipline over Jonah is a mercy, is a loving mercy because he loves him and that's his heart. And so Jonah is exposed and caught as a hypocrite that he is. And at this moment, he's living on borrowed time. Every moment the Hebrew talks about that the the boat itself may like explode from the inside because the pressures of this great sea storm is coming upon him. And so right now, the sailors are in this really tough place where they know that Jonah is at fault, and they're trying to figure out what do they, what do, they do. Verse 11, now to our text, that was the review. Then the sailors said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. 
If you read a number of commentaries on the book of Jonah from different scholars, they'll, they have different positions of understanding Jonah's heart. Uh, some say that Jonah is for the first time showing deep compassion and care for another person for the first time, especially a foreigner. Others say, no, Jonah is not showing compassion because if you read throughout the rest of the book, Jonah cares very little for foreigners and his default is to die. Rather than obey God, Jonah doesn't say here, wait, stop, before you do anything, let me repent and cry out to God for mercy. No, Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah just resolves to die rather than obey the Lord. But my best guess is as good as yours. Because I could read this text looking for the positive side of Jonah's heart or the negative side of Jonah's heart. I don't know. The text isn't clear, and so there's some speculation. And I think that is the ingenious purpose behind Jonah, or one of the purposes, is it causes us to wonder about Jonah's motivations and hearts. And it's hard to know. And I think that's on purpose because it's hard to know our hearts. Sometimes we do things and we say it's because of this, but it's really because of that. And we've deceived ourselves. It's difficult to know why we do what we do. And as much as we swear up and down, it's because of this. Often it's because of that. And we don't know. And I think Jonah doesn't fully know. And you can only make those kind of assertions if you read the rest of the book. But back to it. Instead of killing them, and potentially, instead of killing Jonah, the sailors want to protect themselves from a greater trouble. They don't want to kill this seemingly innocent man, maybe. And so they try to find their own way to save themselves. Verse 13, this is their attempts for self-salvation. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. It is not a wise thing to try to row against a storm, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Trying to save yourself is a losing battle. Trying to row against the mighty hand of God is always a losing battle. Consider all that the sailors have done at this point. They've tried calling out to their own gods. That didn't work. They tried lightening the ship by throwing out cargo. That didn't work. They tried asking Jonah to pray. He would not pray. They tried casting lots. That worked. They figured out it was Jonah. And finally, now they're rowing against the seas and the waves. Nothing's worked. And what is stunning is if you think about this, there's a great hard-heartedness of Jonah. Because of Jonah's action, it's very possible that all of these sailors will be soon obliterated by this raging storm. And Jonah knows the answer to all the problems for the world. He knows his Bible. Jonah knows the true and living God, and he can testify of God's goodness and truth. And yet, despite all that he knows, he is keeping his mouth shut and will not share with them the good news of God and what he can do for them. They are left with no other options but one. Verse 14. Therefore, the sailors called out to Yahweh. Remember, this word, Lord, in all caps in our English Bibles is the personal name Yahweh, which is his covenant name, a special name, only revealed to his people. That sums up all the beauty of his attributes, reveals who he is. And it's interesting, these pagan, non-Jewish sailors are using and addressing God by his personal name. 
O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. This is a profound prayer. It's interesting that the first prayer in this book does not come from Jonah, but from non-Jewish pagan sailors. They're the first ones to pray. And you can see how much they fear Yahweh and respect him, even though they know him very little. They want to honor him. Essentially, they're saying, God, Yahweh, please don't hold us accountable for what we're about to do. We want to do what is right. Do you see our hearts? Please don't kill us. We're trying to do what is right. Don't hold us accountable for this man's blood. Keep us from perishing. But they say one more statement that is easily overlooked if you're reading this story quickly or you're not listening carefully. Look at this last part of this prayer. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. In their short interactions with Jonah in the midst of the storm, their understanding of the power of Yahweh is astounding. Somehow, they understand that God ultimately gets whatever he wants from Jonah and from any situation. God wants Jonah in the water, and that's what will ultimately happen, despite the sailors' vain attempts to keep him. God gets what he pleases. Now, let's camp on this statement for a second, because it's profound. It's one of the most important things you could ever hear, and not just hear, internalize. We see this same kind of phrase throughout the Bible, but let me highlight one of the most well-known ones is Psalm 115.3. And I welcome you to read this out loud with me. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God does all that he pleases. He's the only person, only being that can say such a thing. For those of us here who love and trust and know the mercies of God, this line is extremely comforting. It's extremely comforting. It gives us hope. It gives us joy. It gives us encouragement, despite all the hard things in our lives. This last week, as I've been under the weather and days that I felt terrible, I had an elder meeting over Zoom, and I was just laying on the ground <laughs> as I was in the meeting, just achy. And in those moments, I can say, my God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases, and I trust him. It's a good thing. But if you don't know God's heart, if you are opposed to God, if you're not surrendered under him, you have been adopted yet by the Holy Spirit to be one of his children, this line, God does whatever he pleases, Yahweh does whatever he wants, is one of the most offensive things you could ever hear. The most terrible things you could ever hear. If you're still wrestling with God, distrusting God, skeptical heart, heart uh, towards God, remember I said this last week, because of the fall, all of us are born not with a trusting heart, but a skeptical one, doubting God's heart, God, God's motivations, God's wisdom. So we want to seize that ourselves. This is a very offensive thing. You tell someone on the street that God does whatever he pleases. That's one of the most offensive things that they could hear because they are opposed to God in their state. They are lost in their sins, and that statement flies against their pride, against their own sovereignty, against their own control. 
But as I think about this passage and this truth, as much as I personally still struggle with this reality at times, let me ask you a very basic question. What's the alternative? What's the alternative to God doing whatever he pleases? God doing whatever you please? God doing whatever I please? Listen, you still bite your tongue while you eat on accident. I still, I did that after maybe a good year streak without biting my tongue. It's just the other day I bit my tongue and it's, it was terrible. I was so angry at myself. My, my wife sees me just like writhing in pain at the table and she's like, what's wrong with you? And I said, I just bit my tongue. Why did you do that? She asked. I said, I don't know. I didn't mean to, right? I bite my tongue. You bite your tongue. This week, I got COVID, no matter how much zinc and vitamin C I ingested, and all those funky oils I put on my feet and all the different things, I got COVID. Guess what? God doesn't get COVID. God doesn't bite his tongue. God doesn't make mistakes. And yet, even though I'm so frail, I'm so finite, my faculties, my body is so frail and fallible, yet still, I can presumptuously, arrogantly think that I know better than God. God, oh. If you just gave me your ear, I'll let you know how this world should be run. You know this one relational situation? You should have done that differently. You should rule over Ukraine and Russia differently. You should do this against our Supreme Court differently or our Congress differently. Listen, there is no other alternative. Earlier this year or last year, I, I was on a flight and I watched the last Wonder Woman movie, okay? Don't judge me, it was a long flight, okay? So I watched this Wonder Woman film, okay? And in the film, the great villain has the power to give people what they want. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, all right, just a few people are honest enough. Yeah, I watched Wonder Woman too, Sam. <laughs> um, so this villain gives people the power to get whatever they want when they wish it. And at first, it seems really nice, and people are really excited. But the, the movie gets to this one point where he's able to project himself on every screen in the world. And he says, ask whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. In an instant, millions of people, maybe billions, get whatever they want. And what happens? In seconds, the world is falling apart. The world is exploding, <laughs> People's will are, wills are fighting with each other, trying to vie for their own will, their own supremacy, and it does not work. Is there anyone you know that you wouldn't want to run the world? See, what would it take to be able to run the world and do whatever you please? It would take someone, imagine with me, someone who, who knew everything about everything understood physics and science and medicine and understood the, the vast cultural dynamics of every people group and the, every little detail of the history of every single person. But not only would you have to have someone who knows a lot, you would have to have someone who has a heart that doesn't show favoritism over one group over the other, a heart that is pure, a heart that doesn't flex with 
with the circumstances, doesn't change, doesn't shift values. But not only would you have to have a good heart, you would have to have the wisdom to execute all this knowledge in your hearts. You would have to be able to have the wisdom to execute knowledge in every single complicated dynamic situation. And finally, you would have to have someone who has the authority and the power to do all this at all. You see, if you follow me through that little exercise, then you realize that none of you in this room, especially me, fits that category. None of us has the heart, none of us has the wisdom, none of us has the knowledge or the power to perfectly rule your life or the world. And so contrary to how our pride may feel when you hear the statement that God does whatever he pleases, what is the other alternative Y'all, what we have, what is true is the best we got. That God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Now, this does not excuse the reality that many of you and all of us have immense suffering in our lives and questions we have about why did God do this or why did God do that. But later on in this passage, we'll see God has good news and his good heart towards everything he does. <clears throat> Let's get back to the text. Would you read uh, verse 15 with me? I'm going to drink water because my, my voice is going. <clears throat> so they picked up Jonah. <clears throat> they hurl him in and then immediately, <clears throat> quiet and peace. Incredible. This is clear evidence. This is not some storm that was by happenstance. And now in their primitive, early minds, they're trying to piece it together by creating some sort of divine narrative to, to, to answer the craziness. No, immediately the storm stops and it's at peace. Does that remind anyone of anything? The Gospels. Look at the response of the sailors. They feared Yahweh exceedingly. And they offered sacrifice to the Yahweh and made vows. See, what's so profound is that oftentimes people, maybe you've done this before, make vows to God in a storm, right? We're in a storm. We feel we're over our ability to do anything to get out of the storm, and we make vows to God. God, if you save this person, God, if you keep my wife from dying from cancer, God, if you do blank, I will do blank in return. We make some sort of bargain with God. If you do this, I will do this, God. And what is amazing is that they make these vows when? During or afterwards? After the storm. The storm is done. What that suggests to me is that there's a deep transformation work that God has done in these sailors' hearts. They have a fear towards God. Remember this word fear, yare, is, is not just a, a, I'm afraid. It's, there's a deep reverence. There's an awe. There's a wonder. There's a respect towards this God. And that they make vows and sacrifice to the Lord. Perhaps they did it on the ship. More likely, they waited and went to a site to worship God. In contrast to Jonah, they are more righteous than him so far in this book, which is a theme throughout this book. 
These guys have no business worshiping and knowing Yahweh, and yet they are over and over showing that they're more righteous than, than Jonah. You would expect a prophet would be the one who would humble himself, the one who would be outstanding, and yet he's the one who is giving the worst example. What's going on with Jonah? He gets thrown into the sea, verse 17. Did you read this out loud with me? And Yahweh appointed a great fish. <clears throat> this is amazing. God in his mercy towards Jonah, in his sovereignty. Remember, God's sovereignty is his authority, his power over every sphere, absolutely over every sphere in the world. Even a giant fish appoints a fish to swallow him. This is a mercy. It's not a mercy that Jonah would ever expect, right? Jonah's crying out to God, God, help me, save me. And then a giant fish comes out of nowhere to swallow him. He's like, not like that, not like that. And yet it's a mercy more than Jonah realized. God could just let him drown. Why didn't God just let him drown? Because God had a plan for Jonah. God had appointed him to go and extend mercy to a merciless people the Assyrians. God wasn't done with him. God's character shines brightly in this little verse right here. God extending mercy towards this wayward, stubborn, rebellious prophet with his love and grace. God saves him from death with an uncomfortable savior. Now, I realize that many of us, if you grew up in church, you've heard this over and over again. You've heard a whale which, again, if you think whale, that just shows how much you've been shaped by stories and fairy tales rather than actually going to the text. But a great fish, we don't know what kind of fish is, swallows up Jonah. And you, if you grew up in church, accept it. Yeah, totally. But maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you're a visitor here, and you hear that, and you say, whoa, whoa, Sam. I was with you, but I'm out now. You guys are crazy. Uh, Sam, a giant fish came out of nowhere and swallowed Jonah, and he's alive for three days and three nights. How did he breathe, Sam? Huh? What kind of fish was it? Huh? I get it. It's very strange. But the fact that you would say that demonstrates to me that you still need a more accurate picture of God. Let me share with you a passage that's so beautiful from Jeremiah 32, 27. Would you declare this out loud with me? Behold... That's been a sweet verse for me. There, there are situations in my life, relational hurts, situations that I feel stuck in. And I go to a passage like that, and it just reminds me, nothing's too hard for the Lord, church. You think God appointing a fish to swallow up Jonah and preserving his life is hard? If that's hard for you, then you have a very small view of God. If you can't believe that, there are far more things in the Bible that will be harder for you to believe. But if God could raise Jesus Christ from the dead, in which he has, then nothing is too hard for him. And if God could take Sam Choi's dead, hard heart and bring it to life, then nothing's too hard for him. This is not hard for him. Don't be afraid of things like this, church, when you talk to your skeptical friends. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Declare, God can do whatever he wants. 
Don't sink back, shrink back, trying to excuse yourself and, yeah, you know, it's kind of weird, but, you know, it's just in the Bible. No. God does whatever he pleases. It's not hard for him. I don't know how it all works out, honestly. There's scholars in different reports over the years where people have been found in the belly of giant fish and one of the stomachs of fish, certain whales, certain sharks. There's stories about fishermen who lost one of their, their people. What are they called? One of their sailors? Friends, sure. <laughs> they lose their friend and they can't find their friend. And they catch this giant fish and they cut it open for a meal and then they're like, friend, friend's there, friend's in the fish. We've heard stories about that that have been documented and these people, because they were being slowly digested, their skin is bleached by the stomach acid. We've heard different stories like that and all of them could be true. I don't know. Some of it's speculation, but all I know is that God, it's not hard for him to preserve this guy's life. If he can create the whole world out of nothing, it's not hard for him to create preserve a guy's life in a stomach. If God didn't have Jonah's attention yet, he will now. And at verse one, verse one says this in chapter two, then Jonah prayed for the Lord, to the Lord God, his God from the belly of the fish. Finally, Jonah prays. He's finally awake spiritually after being asleep. Oftentimes, it's the most painful situations and circumstances that wake us up from our stupor. God will send us uncomfortable saviors like giant fishes and seas to wake us up because he loves us too much. Let's look at Jonah's prayer. Jonah prays going back in time about what he prayed when he was thrown into the sea. Verse 2, did you read this out loud with me? I'm just trying to preserve my, my voice. Saying, I called out to the Lord. This is a powerful imagery that we see. It's a, uh, you see, Jonah, he's in the water. He's cast down and he's sinking deeper and deeper into the depths of the ocean. You have this picture of, 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 of like sea, seaweed being wrapped around his neck or his head. He's suffocating. He's losing breath. He uses language like Sheol, which is, is, is kind of an Old Testament picture of hell. Some, some theologians make the argument that Jonah indeed died and was resurrected. He died and went to Sheol, and God resurrected him, which I, I would say is possible. It's also possible he's just using this imagery that it was like he was going to hell in this moment. He is dying. The floodwaters, his finitude is being fully felt. Have you ever felt the power of being stuck under a wave? And how helpless it is when your lungs are full of seawater. You feel how weak you are. Just a little wave can just knock us over and keep us under. And it feels impossible. And Jonah feels this. And yet in that midst of this, his distress, he cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord and God hears him. God is merciful to him. Notice verse 3. I want to make a, another statement about God's sovereignty. 
Who cast Jonah into the sea, according to Jonah? Verse 3. God. But in our last passage, who cast Jonah into the sea? Sailors. Wait, so, so, so make your mind. Who did it? Did God throw him into the sea, or did the sailors throw him into the sea? See, Jonah understands what many Old Testament saints know about God. They understand this robust power of God, that God does whatever he pleases, and yet man does what he pleases, and they work in harmony. Without violating man's own free choices, God accomplishes whatever he wants. And so who tossed Jonah into the sea? God and man did. Man is doing what they want, and simultaneously that's syncing with the very plan of God. This is what some theologians call compatibilism. You want to say that with me? Compatibilism. So compatible, you know, like this girl and I, we're compatible-ism. But except it's not God and a girl. It's, it's, a, it's a fact that God does whatever he pleases, and simultaneously every single one of us are doing what we want and is not violating our own free will, free choices. We're doing what we want, and yet it's sinking with God's divine plan. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. You see this throughout the whole scriptures, but I just want to put a little plug right there if you were wondering about that. It's a very important, robust understanding of God that man does have free choices. You are doing what you want, and yet God is doing whatever he wants simultaneously. Jonah chapter 2, verse 4. Then Jonah said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Remember in chapter 1, Jonah fled from the face of God. He turned from the face of God. Sin is not just saying missing the mark or doing something wrong. You're literally turning from the face of your God. But now hope is rising in his heart. He believes that once again he'll return to the temple in Jerusalem and worship God there. Verse 5 through 7. Would you read this with me? The water closed in over me. There is a lot here, and I can't get into all the details, but you can see the the depths of his despair and what was going on here. He was going down into the pits, and yet God was merciful to him. He prayed, and God heard him. But notice, Jonah's heart is full of thanksgiving, which is incredible when you think about it. Jonah is thanking God while he's where? Where is he right now? The dude is being digested, and he's thanking God, which is a profound thing when you think about it. It's a secret that Jonah found that very few people in the world find, and that is that your circumstances do not dictate the level of gratitude you can have. Jonah is still in the trial. Jonah is still in the belly of the fish, and yet he is thanking God. He's not yet free. He's not breathing in fresh air, and yet he is thanking God. Can you thank God when your, answers, your prayers are still not answered? 
See, what did Jonah learn? How could Jonah feel such gratitude in the midst of the trial while he's still in the belly of the fish? One preacher put it this way. It's on the screen. There is a greater deliverance than deliverance from circumstances. It is deliverance from sin. See, Jonah's great joy and what is filling his heart with gratitude is not the fact that he's out of the trial, but that he's now awakened to God. He's delivered from his sin. He's returned to the Lord that he forgot and ran from. Listen, church, one of the greatest things that can ever happen to you is not that you're delivered from your circumstances, but that your heart is awakened back to God, that your heart is humble again, that you're responsive, that your heart is no longer hardened but soft before the Lord. Do you have a Christianity like that? That you can have a heart full of gratitude while you're still in the midst of the trial, while you're still in unimaginable pain? And there's questions still to be answered. Tensions and unmet longings in your heart. Or is your Christianity one that has been so domesticated that you can only worship God when everything fits your sensibilities and your expectations, your timetables? Jonah is understanding a secret that very few ever understand. Now look at verse 8. Let's go back to his prayer. Jonah prays, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah is making a true statement. It's a true statement that if you put your hope in idols, it's vanity. And you lose your, any hope that you will know the steadfast love of Yahweh. This word, steadfast love, throughout the Old Testament if you have an ESV, steadfast love, you can write in there the word hesed. It's this beautiful covenant language love that God has with his people. It's not just a love that is like our love, but it's an unconditional kind of steadfast, persevering, powerful love. But what is interesting is that Jonah here is talking about other people. Although there is an awakening going on in Jonah's heart, he starts talking about other people. Some scholars will say he's talking about himself too, but I don't see that in the grammar here. He's talking about those people. I thank God I'm not like those people. Does that sound familiar? If you guys went through the Gospel of Luke. I'm not like that guy. I thank God that I don't worship idols, and yet what we understand as we read the rest of the book of Jonah is that Jonah does have idols in his life, just not idols like the Assyrians, not made out from hand, but, but made from his own heart. And those idols are still not yet fully exposed in Jonah. But yet, I find this actually encouraging. Why, Sam? Why do you find that encouraging that Jonah still has a idolatrous heart while he's praying. I find it encouraging because God still accepts his prayer. God still shows mercy upon Jonah, even though God sees the depths of Jonah's heart and understands that there's still far deeper evils that Jonah is unaware of. You know why that's encouraging to me? It's because that's me every day. There's never a time where I fully repented over any sin and I get the full depths of what I've done. You parents, you know this, you try to lead your children through repentance towards God and towards their sibling who they hurt. 
say sorry. That's, that's a terrible thing to say, but let's just say you say that. Say sorry, right? And they're like, sorry, I was, right? And at times, God's working and they really get it. I'm really sorry I did that. And yet, as you hear them, as you know them, you know that they still don't get the depths of what they've done. Or they've done something against your, you, you as a parent, and it, and it creates incalculable damage in your house, right? And they apologize, and it's really important for us to know that you can, something can be true without being full, right? They truly are apologizing. They truly are repentant, yet it's not full. And that's the beauty of our relationship with God. We can come to God with our loaves and fishes of our hearts, still missing so much, and yet God accepts our hearts, even if it's not fully there, even, if, even though we don't fully get all that we've done, all that he is, and all that we're saying. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a good thing that God didn't say, well, until you get it to the full level of an 80-year-old Christian, then you can come to me. No, even in our infancy, even in our immaturity, God says, I, I, I'll take that. I get you. And that's a good example for us in the way we disciple one another. As we walk with people, there's going to be levels of repentance that they cannot yet reach at the level of maturity they're at. And it's, it's very, 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 very hard to have the discernment to see what's going on there, and to walk with people with where they're at, not where you want them to be, or where they one day will be, and take with what they give you. Verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Section ends with this beautiful picture of Jonah extolling the goodness of God, thanking God, saying, God, I will obey. I will obey. And he says this powerful statement, salvation belongs to Yahweh, which some theologians argue that this is the main statement in the entire book. And yet Jonah does not get how true this statement is. At this point, Jonah loves the mercy of God for himself, but we'll see in chapter 3 and 4 is he yet does not understand God's mercy for other people. He loves the gospel for himself but he's not yet at that place where he can understand that God's mercy is free for other people. He can't stand God's mercy for other people. We'll see soon. What we're going to see is that God will save what he wants, whom he wants, and God does what he wants. In this chapter, we see that God accomplishes all that he wants. He's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, and salvation belongs to him and him alone. And so he wants to save Jonah, and he, will want to, and he does also want to save the Assyrians. He wants to save the sailors. And so you see God's sovereign plan coming according to plan. Verse 10, as we end our passage. And Yahweh spoke to the fish, again, God's sovereignty, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Not a very respectable situation. In Hebrew, this word vomit is vomit. It's disgusting. It shows the humiliation of what Jonah is going through. He just got vomited after being digested for several days. Jonah's humbled, and now he's going to obey God. It shows, again, the power of God over all things. Now, as I kind of bring this to an end, I want you to consider this whole scene. Because we can get lost. Because oftentimes when we read the Bible, we can look at the Bible as a third party. So, yeah, that's cool. And we, we, we kind of protect ourselves. We distance ourselves. God has commanded Jonah towards something Jonah hates. 
He touches a sore spot, a soft spot that's too close to home. And Jonah hates it. And Jonah refuses, runs from God's command, and goes the opposite direction. But God, in his mercy, instead of destroying him for his disobedience, extends mercy to him. An uncomfortable mercy, nonetheless, but a terrifying mercy, but mercy. And he spares him from a watery grave. In doing so, Jonah wakes up to reality. But let, let me call you again, church. Stay with me last, last few moments. Do not miss the point of this. Do not sit there with your, point, your, your hand pointed at Jonah saying, look at Jonah the hypocrite, disobeying God when God speaks to him. See, the power of this book, or the potential power of the book, if we will let it be, is that is Jonah very different from us? You don't need to hear an audible voice. We have God's word right here. We all have heard direct commandments from God. Who here of us has not run in the opposite direction when we've heard uh, and read a command from God's word? Who here of us have not put our fingers in our ears, put our head down, closed our eyes, and just powered through whatever our will desired when we knew God said no? Who of us among us is innocent of these things? All of us have heard God's direct word and said, no, God, not that. I will do what I want in this situation. I will go the opposite direction. I will close my ears to your word. I will harden my heart to your spirit. I will reject the counsel of my community. All of us have done that. No one here is that unique. All of us here are unique, but we're not that unique. All of us have sinned like Jonah, and we deserve death. Why? Why could I say such a preposterous thing that we deserve death? Because we are disobeying the sovereign of the universe, the king of the world, our creator, our Lord, our highest authority. And the greater the authority, the greater the consequence when you transgress against it. But God had mercy on Jonah, and he will have mercy on us. Our passage today gives us a beautiful picture of what God does to show mercy on us. Let me take you back to Jonah 1.14. Look with me. Would you read this one with me one more time? Therefore. The sailors are not correct about the statement fully, but their heart is right. They don't want innocent blood, and yet they don't realize how guilty Jonah is. They want to be pardoned for what they're doing. But the good news is that Jesus gives to us what these men long for. Jesus is truly the only innocent one, and he dies for all who hope in him. And turn from their sins. They will not perish. Jesus cast his own body into an earthly grave. Suffers and dies. The innocent one. The only one who's ever been innocent. He's treated like he's guilty. Like he's Jonah. Like he's disobeying God. And all of us here who are putting our hope freshly in Jesus will not perish. But have everlasting life. And yet you can ask yourself, how do we know that we can trust that God truly can save us from our sins and keep us from perishing? Well, look with me to Matthew 12, 40. 
Jesus is speaking a parable, but he says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So just like Jonah goes through some kind of mini resurrection, Jesus will have a great resurrection too. Jesus too will be swallowed up by an earthly grave, but on the third day rise triumphantly. And this gives us in confidence that Jesus truly was innocent. He never did anything wrong. Jesus is truly sufficient and accepted for your sins and my sins, no matter how bad, no matter how dark. And Jesus truly conquers death for us and will come, come back one day and conquer and make all things right. So how should you and I, no matter where you are, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, respond to this God and this text this morning? Jonah chapter 1, verse 16. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. The good thing is, is that you don't have to make any sacrifices to God because Jesus already did that for you, a perfect sacrifice. But we all must fear this Lord, this God who is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, this God who is sovereign over salvation and worship him. And if you have other competing idols in your hearts, this is a great time to give them up to him and receive his forgiveness and his mercy afresh. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text. Thank you, Lord, for this good news that you are sovereign over all things. Help us humbly receive it and not fight it like we so often do. Help us embrace our finitude, our weakness. And thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over all people, that even a hardened stubborn man like Jonah, you can transform. And that gives us hope because all of us here have situations that we feel stuck in, situations that feel impossible, but nothing is impossible for you, God. We put our hope freshly in you. We surrender to you. I pray that you'd stir in all of us by your spirit a fresh fear of you, a fresh worship of you. Be bigger in our eyes. Expand our vision in our revelation of who you are. Spirit of wisdom and revelation be imparted upon every heart according to Ephesians chapter 1 so that we may behold how great you are in response that we would fear you and make vows and by your spirit live out those vows following you. Give us strength, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this text. And if I said anything wrong, please correct me. And Lord, let it be forgotten. But all that is true, let it transform us for your glory and our increasing joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.